Hello from ABA Annual Meeting 2018 in Chicago, Illinois. I'm Jason Taché. Hi, Jason. I'm Judge Bernice Donald from the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals. And I'm Andy Grosso, an attorney in Washington, D.C. I'm Alan Butler at the Electronic Privacy Information Center. I'm Lorraine Kusselberg from Purdue University. And we're on the road with the Legal Talk Network. Thank you so much for joining us on the road. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, today we're going to be talking about criminal justice tussle with technology. And we've got a great panel here uh, to discuss that. Now, there's a lot of topics right now that are crossing between technology and criminal justice. And Alan, I was hoping you could tell us just a few of the main ones that you were just talking about on today's panel. Sure. So we talked about uh, some major cases both in the U.S. Supreme Court and that are uh, sort of close to the U.S. Supreme Court cases that didn't quite make it. The first uh, major case that we talked about was the Supreme Court's decision in June in Carpenter versus United States. And what we're talking about there is uh, the Fourth Amendment and the tracking of cell phones and cell phone location uh, of individuals, criminal defendants, and others. So really we're dealing with the question of how the Fourth Amendment applies to these modern technologies. Uh, We also talked about the use of algorithms in the criminal justice system, Uh, And we talked about the application of criminal law to uh, computer-related crimes under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, as well as the emergence of Bitcoin technology in the criminal justice system. So the first thing you brought up there was the Carpenter case, which was the Fourth Amendment barn burner this year from the Supreme Court. Uh, Andrew, I was curious to your thoughts. I heard you say in the panel that you think, and Alan, I believe you agreed to this, uh, that the Fourth Amendment with digital privacy and digital searching is going to be seen as pre-Carpenter and post-Carpenter. I was wondering if you could elaborate on that. That was Alan's comment, and I really do agree with it. There was a statement in the majority opinion by Justice Roberts saying that there's an expectation of privacy in records held by third parties. Uh, that's never been held before. And I think it's a recognition of the fact that today we live in an environment where we just cannot avoid uh, giving out our personal information, our business information uh, to private companies, uh, public companies, uh, other individuals. And if we do not redefine what the Fourth Amendment means, what the right to privacy means, there will be no right to privacy, there will be no privacy, there will be no Fourth Amendment. We didn't discuss this at all today, but I'm going to raise the fact that we have a Ninth Amendment in the Constitution. And that says the rights of the people that are not enumerated in this Constitution nonetheless uh, remain with the people. And uh, despite the fact that old classical definitions of Fourth Amendment protections, which are rooted in property, uh, no longer have the force and effect that they once did because of our digital age, those rights still belong to the people. And so that's just one example of how technology is dramatically changing aspects of the law and, and creating these new issues. And I've noticed at panels here and other conferences I go to that on the technology panels, there's always a trigger warning for lawyers at the beginning saying, I'm going to talk about math at some point <laughs> during this panel. Now, Lorraine, you're a computer scientist. What technical issues do you see the law and lawyers getting, getting wrong most often? I would not have a broad answer to that, but Alan and I actually were talking about something similar. When we talk about the Loomis um, algorithm, which is used in criminal sentencing decisions, 
we talk about statistical terms, and there are large differences between the accuracy of a tool, the reliability of a tool, and the um, validity of the tool. And those, even for those of us who use statistics a lot in our research, are sometimes not well understood. And so I think, at least in that particular case, it's important really to have a good understanding of what those three terms mean in order to interpret correctly what are some of the issues with the Loomis case. So I hear this discussion often, uh, specifically around risk assessment tools, that we're looking for some type of statistical analysis to know that it's predicting the right things and it's doing a good job at that prediction. Mm -hmm. However, a lot of these tools are using factors that I think to many people appear to be equal protection violations. If uh, statistically men are more likely to commit crime than women, which is true, it's backed up by all of the information that we have, then these tools, to be statistically accurate, are going to use gender as an input factor. Uh, however, my understanding of protected classes in the Constitution would indicate that gender would be an unconstitutional input factor. So I'm curious, can we constitutionally make accurate algorithms in the risk assessment context? I don't think it's a question for me to answer. I Maybe some of the question. lawyers on the panel have thoughts. <laughs> if you want truth, then the answer is if gender or race or religion has a legitimate role in the calculation of the algorithm, there should be no constitutional problem in incorporating it. But you have to be very, very careful when you do that, uh, both because of the fact that those elements may carry some unknown weights with them that really do not have an impact in reality, Somehow they fall out of the statistics nonetheless, and because of human bias in uh, putting them in. So the answer is yes, you can have a constitutional way of using them, but be very careful. I was just going to say, um, Jason, I think one thing that we have to be legitimately concerned with is that there is not an over-reliance on these predictive tools. I think that we know historically that there has been tremendous bias in the, the justice system. And there are some of these stereotypes and assumptions that are, that are baked in. I think Lorraine makes a good point and she talks about, we have to look at what it is we're measuring for and what kind of weights are we according these things. And, and, and we don't always know this. And you know, we judges for the most part are generalists and we're trying to deal with and use these tools, but we cannot over rely on the tool. I think there has to be uh, an evaluation and an analysis of other factors so that judges can accord the necessary weight to the tool but not make that be the sole factor. And we have to recognize that there is nothing that is infallible. There is a role, as you say, for the human judge to interact with these, uh, these algorithms that are generated, but we can't just look at that because when we do, we're actually allowing the, the technology to become the decision maker, and, and that was never intended. So, Judge, I want to follow up on that uh, to a certain degree. In the panel, you said something that struck out to me, and that was, uh, quote, courts are going to be struggling with these issues because I think law always tends to trail science. Absolutely. And I used to firmly believe this, but now I'm less sure because I see companies and technologists consistently believing that a part of their innovation is that well-settled law doesn't apply to them. So I'm wondering if maybe lawyers need to take a step back and share the blame a little bit. Well, I think they may see and say that, but I think ultimately 
when there's an issue, where does it come? It comes back to courts, for courts to resolve this. And we're using uh, settled principles, but these settled principles are, are being applied to all of this, uh, this technology. So I still believe that we have a set of rules that technology is forcing us to evolve in some areas. But all of this fast-moving technology, I believe, is sort of dragging the law alone. And I know that, that uh, we're going to see more of that. I, I think about the, um, and this is a, a case that I simply read about, with AI, the artificial intelligence, where these computers were being taught this language. And when the engineers or whomever does this kind of thing shut the things off, I think this was a Google case, the machines continue to talk and develop their own language. And, you know, that's kind of scary for me because I don't know technology, if this is true. But I do believe that uh, we who sit in legislatures, I don't sit there, but courts uh, who actually are, are applying the laws that legislatures pass, uh, we are playing catch up. And so beyond catch up, obviously, there's going to be a lot of new issues coming down the pike. At the beginning of this conversation, we started talking about uh, the U.S. versus Carpenter, which is a big step forward, but there's still plenty of unresolved issues. Alan, I'm wondering, what are the big issues that you think we're going to be needing uh, or will be seeing answers to coming through the courts in the next few years? When you think about the Fourth Amendment context specifically, um, I think there are a lot of immediate follow-on questions to Carpenter that are related to cell phone location data that are, I think, important, but maybe like less sort of interesting to think about because they're so close to Carpenter. I think the more interesting applications of Carpenter will be uh, ones that don't, in, don't directly involve cell phone location. So things like, you know, there's been a lot in the news recently about these private companies that collect and, and analyze DNA, for example. So what are the implications of Carpenter in the context of 23andMe? Um, that that's an issue that hasn't yet percolated up, but I could see it doing so. Also, uh, the use of connected devices in the home, like the Alexa or the Google Home. Uh, the use of those devices and the, the collection of information from those devices, activating them remotely, uh, things like that. How is that going to play out in the courts? And then uh, another issue that I think is important, but maybe not so directly implicated by Carpenter, is the, the searches of electronic devices that happen at the border. Well, excellent. Well, this has been a fantastic panel. We've covered more topics than we probably should have in the time uh, that we've been allotted, uh, but we've reached the end of the road for today's episode. Uh, I want to thank our guests for joining us today. Um, if anyone would like to share contact information, Twitter handles, or any ways that people can follow up with you, uh, please do. Sure. I'm happy to share my email, which is judgedonald at gmail.com. For Andy Grosso. My best contact information is my website, Grosso Law, G-R-O-S-S-O-L-A-W.com. And for Alan Butler, I'm at the Electronic Privacy Information Center. We're epic.org. I'm also on Twitter at Alan in D.C. And for Lorraine Kasselberg, the easiest way to reach me is my first name, L-O-R-R-A-I-N-E, at purdue.edu. Well, I also want to thank our listeners for tuning in today. And if you like what you've heard, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. We'll see you next time for another episode of On the Road with the Legal Talk Network. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS. Find us on Twitter and Facebook. Or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. 
The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.